We're going to read the next little bit in John's Gospel. We're reading from John, or reading our way through the Gospel according to John at the moment. Um, I'm just making sure my phone is switched off. Hope you have too. So we've been reading, uh, we got up to chapter 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, a man who was dead, had been dead for four days, uh, and Jesus deliberately delayed going to uh, visit Lazarus or to, to see him before he died, even though word reached him that Lazarus was sick, and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, would have welcomed Jesus coming. Jesus was friends with the three siblings, with that family, stayed often in their home in Bethany, just two miles outside Jerusalem, whenever he was in traveling in the south. And so Jesus had not just the, the, the ordinary call of sick people, which he readily responded to in his miracles uh, and signs of, of compassion and the signs of the kingdom of God advancing, but he had a, a family connection, although not blood relatives, he had a, a connection with this family. And so when he didn't come and, G and Lazarus died, uh, it was uh, Martha and Mary struggled, it seems, to understand why uh, there was a certain amount of acceptance, but probably also a certain amount of confusion, maybe even a little um, hurt recrimination that Jesus hadn't turned up in time. And so we read of how Jesus was uh, moved by all of the grief at the, the, the family and those who'd come to mourn with them because of Lazarus' death. When Jesus got there, he was already dead and in the grave for four days, and Jesus wept with them, not out of powerlessness or defeat, but out of compassion, the, the weeping of God in Jesus for uh, the brokenness and the curse that is death and suffering. And then Jesus, as we know, went to the, to the tomb and had the stone taken away and uh, gave a command after praying to God to Lazarus to come out. And the man who'd been dead for four days, and we were saying last week, in four days in a Middle Eastern grave, the chances are that there was a fairly advanced decomposition. Uh, nonetheless, Lazarus came out of the grave, uh, uh, wrapped in the grave clothes, alive, and Jesus gave the instruction for the grave clothes to be taken away and him to be let go. Now, we also noticed that it was um, four days after he died, which meant that there was enough time, not just for the family or even the neighborhood but, or even the local community, but actually for people to come from Jerusalem. And so, by the time this miracle took place, there was a sizable group of people, some of them who were from Jerusalem. Uh, and so, they were probably the biggest group of witnesses to this miracle that there might have been in a seven-day period of mourning. Um, and so, the next bit we're going to read, the end of the chapter, is the bit, well, I don't know about you, but certainly when I've ever read or heard the story of the raising of Lazarus preached, this is the bit that never gets read. Uh, this is the bit that follows on from that, but we stop at Lazarus coming out of the tomb. But the next bit is a, a, a crucial bridge between the end of this bit of John's gospel, so the signs that Jesus has performed, and he's performed six signs up to this point of healing, of miracle. And Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus is the sixth sign. 
And so there's now a bridge which will link us to the rest of John's gospel, which is, of course, the climactic seventh sign, the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. So, we're going to read from chapter 11 of John and verse 45 through to 57. Let's hear the Word of God. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem, so the top court. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, "'What do you think?' Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Amen. May God bless his word to us today. And so the climax of this chapter, this raising of Lazarus, has sent ripples and shockwaves. I mean, tragic news does send ripples and shockwaves. A young police officer has been in our news in the last 24 hours who was uh, killed uh, because he was dragged by a vehicle in a village in Berkshire, and some, I don't know, 13 people have been arrested. But I think probably and this is no disrespect to the death of any police officer, I suspect what certainly caught my heart in all of that story was that the guy had been married four weeks. And the realization that in all the big stories and in all the uh, tragic stories, there is a human story. And human stories of grief and loss and sorrow where we have a connection, or where we can enter into that connection vicariously. We are uh, in a situation here in uh, St. George's Tron just now, a lovely situation where quite a number of our young people have either recently got married or recently got engaged. And, uh, and, and so it's, this is just a lovely season of uh, weddings and engagements and so on. But you see, it's 
Like when you become a parent, or in my case, a grandparent, you suddenly enter again into the world of children or of, of, of little ones. And when people are, are recently married and you've shared in their wedding celebrations, Pete's tired because he was best man to his brother who got married yesterday. Great coming together of family celebrations and great joy. And then on the back of that, for that young police constable, age 28, for his widow, the tragedy of losing his life like that in a brutal situation which is still being investigated. And so ripples go out because we enter into other people's losses, because we knew that person, because we knew someone who knew them, because we had a connection with the family. And the people that came to visit Martha and Mary and Lazarus came because they wanted to comfort them, and so there was a personal connection. And so the contrast of that tragedy and all that wailing and mourning, and some of it, uh, certainly there was professional mourning that went on amongst richer people, but probably a lot of genuine mourning. And in amongst all of that, these stupendous, incredible miracle of Jesus raising a man who had been dead for four days. And everybody in that culture knew what a body four days dead and buried would be like. And yet here he walks out of the tomb, is released from his grave clothes and allowed to go free, and is back home with his two sisters in the family home. And everybody can see him and talk to him. And wouldn't you love to have a sit-down chat with Lazarus? Wouldn't you love to hear it from his perspective? But just the incredulity of it, here is the dead man back home again, eating meals. The tears have been dried, apart from the tears of relief and joy and celebration. And, and word is spreading of this thing which people are struggling to take in. I mean, as somebody that you knew and had lived with in community and had gone to the funeral and had seen put in the tomb was back walking among, it would blow your mind, right? It would blow my mind. And so this climactic miracle, the, the crowning miracle of all, if you like, or of, of Jesus' miracles, sent not just ripples, but shockwaves, shockwaves of joy, of joy and wonder amongst the Jewish people who already knew of all the stories of Jesus' healing and the miracles that He'd performed. But this now, to crown them all? And so we're told that many of the Jews from Jerusalem and elsewhere who'd come to visit Mary and Martha, although I don't know why Martha doesn't get a mention there, had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Thomas, of course, famously after Jesus' resurrection said, unless I see the holes in his hands where the nails were, or the wound in his side where the centurion pierced him, I will not believe. And a week later, Thomas did get to witness those very marks. And of course, Jesus said, blessed are those are you who have believed, or have seen and have believed, but blessed are those, sorry, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. 
Well, here were people who saw and believed, but incredibly, we're also told that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, I've been trying, as I've been preparing for this, to imagine how that conversation ran. (laughs) I'd like to put in a complaint. (laughs) I would like to bring to your attention, there's something that you ought to know about. How, How do you go about complaining about the miracle of raising somebody from the dead? How do you manage? What twisted contortions do you have to go through to turn something as incredible and wonderful and overwhelming as somebody being raised from the dead into the grounds for a complaint or a moan or a negative report to the Pharisees? And how do we know it was negative? Because we know that some believed in him, but there's a little word in there translated in our English as but. But. So some believed, but some went and reported it. And nobody went reporting it, I don't imagine, to the Pharisees. Well, maybe they did, but I don't imagine they all went to the Pharisees saying, see, now you should believe in Jesus. So I'm struggling to imagine how having witnessed or heard of and been able to see Lazarus alive, they managed to turn that into a negative. And yet, I suppose I shouldn't really be surprised, because we still live in a world where if you care to investigate the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, seriously and in a detached, logical, objective way, as, as much as you can, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is compelling. And I know people have all sorts of other objections about Christians and the church, but actually at the heart of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is compelling. Very difficult to explain away the empty tomb. Where was the body? Did the authorities steal it? If so, why not then produce the body they had stolen in order to quell the rumors that were going around that Jesus was raised from the dead? If the disciples stole the body, then why would they, some of them, all of them as far as we know, why would they go to their deaths knowing that the resurrection of Jesus was just a lie and a fabrication that they put together? I would not willingly go to my death for something that I knew I had hatched with my mates as a bit of a story. So who else removed the body? Grave robbing, we know, was common in those days, but they left behind the only thing, if it was grave robbers, that was of any value. Grave robbers robbed graves to get out of it any precious items that had been buried with the dead, including the cloth and the herbs and so on, everything that was wrapped around the body. And of course, we know that the only things that remained in the tomb when Jesus was found not to be there was the cloth. So how then to account for the persistence of the message of resurrection 
How then to, per, to account for the persistence of the faith of millions of people in the world that Jesus raised, is raised from the dead? And yet, we could go out into the streets, and I, I know I've used that as a reference lots of times because I stand here and watch them all going past. But we could go and talk to people outside, and there will be people who haven't investigated the resurrection of Jesus, who will have dismissed Jesus as a, as a good teacher or, or a charlatan or, or consigned to history. There will be people who will have made their own decisions about Jesus without ever really looking into who He was or whether it's possible that His claims as the Son of God, as the Messiah, were true. There's an incredible capacity in the human mind or heart to set aside the evidence and just go with what you think you already know, not to actually look into it. And so despite Lazarus's resurrection, there were still those who perhaps thought Jesus to be a charlatan. He'd performed some dark art. I have no idea. But for them anyway, the cry of fake news went up. And they took their cry of fake news to the itching ears of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees who were the experts in the law, and the Sadducees who were the priestly class who were in charge of the temple and the temple worship in Jerusalem. And the chief priests who were in the, the party of the Sadducees and the Pharisees called a meeting of the ruling council. And they spoke out of their frustration. They spoke out of their frustration. What are we accomplishing? What is it they were hoping to accomplish? What was their fear? Well, at the time, Israel, as we know, Judea, were under Roman occupation. But the Romans, wisely, in order to exercise uh, control over the people and not stir up too much uprising, cut them some slack, allowed them to have their religion. They didn't impose the Roman religion. It was there in the background amongst the Romans, but they did not impose their, uh, the, the, the worship of, of Roman gods, the, the Roman and the Greek pantheon, the Roman and Greek gods that we all learned about in school, or maybe some of us did. They didn't impose them they didn't abolish the Jewish religion and ban them from practicing it. They didn't sack or destroy their temple. They allowed the priests and the Pharisees still to operate. In other words, they allowed the Jews to have their temple and their religion as a trade-off if they would behave and not rise up and rebel or not revolt against Rome. And so as long as they were good boys and girls and kept their noses clean and did their religion then they could have it. But of course, if there was any hint or suggestion that there was some messianic revolutionary around, a couple of hundred years before, we, we talked about this, a couple of hundred years before, there had been a similar revolt 
when a guy called Judah, Judah, Judah Maccabeah revolted against the Seleucid kings of Syria and caused a, a, a whole uh, revolt. We looked at that when we, looked at, we were learning about Hanukkah a few weeks ago, the Feast of Dedication. And of course, there's a little bit of history of, of Jewish uh, religious zealotry, of people rising up against oppressive kings to put them out. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, you know, so many people are going after this Jesus. So many people think he's the Messiah, and now he's done this. We are on our way to a full-scale rebellion here. We are on our way to a full-scale revolt, and the Romans will just crush it. And not only will they crush it, they will destroy the temple, they'll ban our religion, they will stop and prevent everything that we are invested in leading and doing. And most importantly, our status, our position, our identity, our fine clothes, our respect and adoration from the people, our wealth, our inherited dynastic reign as priests and high priests and so on, it's all going to be gone. I <laughs> can't have that. Sorry, we can't have that. We are not going to let one guy, I don't care how many miracles he claims to have done, we are not having one guy ruin all this for us with the Romans. He's got to go. Now, when we read the next bit, as I've read and no doubt you've read the bit where Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up, and he says these chilling, prophetic words, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. We think, oh my goodness, Caiaphas has understood atonement. <laughs> Caiaphas has understood the gospel. Caiaphas has understood that someone needs to die for the sins of the people so that they could be forgiven. Uh-uh. Not so, my friends. He was right, but he didn't know what he was saying. As high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. But you see, here's the thing. In Caiaphas's head, he wanted Jesus to die, to be got rid of, so that the Jewish nation the Jewish worship, the Jewish temple, the Jewish priesthood, everything they had could carry on as it was. So he wasn't talking about Jesus dying for the sins of or dying in the place of the Jewish people or anybody else. He was talking about Jesus dying so that the Jewish nation and its worship could continue. We'll come back to that thought. But it's a scary thought that here's somebody who has got wind of, and here's a whole group of people who have got wind of an incredible miracle of God, an incredible sign of power over death, an incredible climactic miracle after a whole series of incredible signs, 
and they want to kill it. They want to kill it stone dead. Jesus was an affront to their status quo. And we need to learn from this and be careful. Because in my short season as a Christian, relatively speaking, over many years I have met Christians and probably at times been one. Christians, religious people who are so certain that they know what God can and cannot do, will and will not do, is and is not allowed to do, that they will then set themselves up as the litmus test of what is of God and what is not. You know, God is God. And heaven help anyone who tries to tell God what he can and cannot do, what he should and should not do. And so there are Christians who will set themselves up as the litmus test of what is the correct interpretation of God's Word. Or there are Christians or religious people who will refuse or deny any sign of the movement of God's Spirit or the miraculous, who will have decided that the season for the miraculous is gone and passed and over, and God is not allowed to do that anymore. There's always the danger that we set ourselves up as the ones who know exactly what is true and false, right and wrong. Now, we have God's Word, and we know from God's Word what is honoring to Him, what is true of Him, what reflects His character and His grace. But the ways in which the Spirit of God moves, Jesus said, the, the Spirit blows where He wills. You cannot see where it comes from or where He's going. And, you know, we have to guard our hearts because there can be a hardening of our hearts that says, I have decided now absolutely what God may or may not do. And then, of course, some new move of the Spirit of God breaks out. And yes, we have to test these things and see if they point to Jesus, if they produce fruit that is consistent with godly character and, and honoring the name of Jesus and are not some distraction. But you know, every new move of the Spirit of God, starting with Pentecost, began with a series of chaos, <laughs> where some people alleged that the apostles had had too much wine and that they were drunk, and that it was utterly reprehensible that people should be behaving in this way, speaking in tongues and so on, until, of course, they discovered that this was not drunkenness, but a move of God's Spirit. Test the spirits, of course, we must test the spirits. But I put the ultimate, of course, is just this moment, where here are godly men, or men who purport to be godly, who in defense of their God, and in defense of their religion, and in defense of their power and control within that religion, are hatching a plan to commit murder and break one of the commandments. See how blindness can settle upon us? Where fixed mindsets 
or even at the very basic level where Christians take such strong views about things that they actually end up falling out with or virtually in their hearts calling down curses upon people who don't agree with them or see it differently. And despite the fact that Jesus died to create one new people out of Jew and Gentile and all the diverse nations of the world, and Jesus' desire, his prayer that will come on to in John 17 was that we be one. Nonetheless, our certainty can lead us to a heart condition and a heart attitude towards other people that is not expressed in love or grace or humility, that does not honor the other. So, guard your heart. We all have the propensity to set ourselves up as little judges, to make ourselves the final word and the arbiter, not just of what other people, whether other people are right or wrong, but of what God Himself is allowed or not allowed to do. Our attitude must be one of expecting the unexpected where God is concerned. And so here we have these religious leaders plotting murder to preserve their power base, to defend, as they believe, the honor of God, planning to kill other people in ways which were to kill Jesus, and, and, and will end up doing so in ways which are utterly horrific. It's quite frightening. Ruth and I watched a film called Vice the other night. It's not like a kind of New York crime thing. It's a story about Dick Cheney, vice president who served under George W. Bush. It's quite an interesting film. I'll let you decide whether you want to watch it yourself, but it just casts some light on the corridors of power and of the ways in which people in high places will conspire and work quietly in corners to bring about things which, in the fullness of time, will cost lives. You know, we live in a world where all of this stuff that we read in this little passage, the machinations of power, the desire to protect my base— the hatred for the other and the refusal to be humble before God and consider that God might be the one before whom we should bow down and worship. All of these things are alive and well. This is a story for the 21st century as it was a story back then. This is a story of how powerful people conspired to get rid of Jesus in the same way that there are powerful people in our world today who still conspire to get rid of Jesus. I know I keep quoting the statistic, but 80% of religious persecution that takes place in the world today is against the followers of Jesus. 80% of religious persecution in the world today is against followers of Jesus. They tried to kill him then, and they still try to kill him now. 
And there have been all sorts of political movements of, of uh, different uh, theocracies or um, atheistic uh, governments or whatever that one way or another have wanted to silence the gospel. And yet, miraculously, the gospel grows and continues to grow, and the Christian church continues to grow at a phenomenal rate in our world, despite those efforts. And so, at the end of the day, I suppose it comes down to how you see Jesus' death. At the end of the day, you either have to interpret verse, sorry, I'm just lost the verse, verse 50, which is the one that says, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And there's two ways of interpreting that. You see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees wanted Jesus to be dead, but to be dead to them. They wanted Jesus to be dead to them and dead to the people and dead to their power base and dead to their influence and dead to Jerusalem and Judea. They just wanted Jesus dead and out of it. End of the story. Go away, Jesus. We're in charge. And that temptation exists in the human heart still. And you know, even as Christians, we have to guard against that attitude. Because we too can have the appearance, and this is the worrying thing, but the thing I'm reflecting on, so maybe you need to as well, we can have the appearance of being the people of God. And yet underneath our hearts can be as invested in keeping what we have, in preserving our own autonomy, our own wealth and influence, our own sphere, not having Jesus rock our boat or tell us really what to do. We are just as capable, you see, of wanting Jesus to be dead to us in some departments. Please don't interfere. Please don't tell me what to do. Please don't require me to obey you in this area of my life, because I want it my way. And I would rather you went away and stopped bothering me about that. And so I'm just as capable as a Christian in some areas of my life of wanting Jesus to be dead to me and not bothering me. And of course, the Sadducees and the Pharisees took it to the absolute extreme and arranged for Jesus to be dead. Or you can be one who I hope, and that's the reason why you're here, recognizes that you need Jesus' death for you. Because that is the interpretation of that prophecy that came through Caiaphas. It's a little scary that Caiaphas had a prophecy that was a true prophecy, but he just didn't understand or see the power or the meaning of it. That yes, Jesus would indeed die, but he wouldn't die just to be got rid of or go away. Jesus would die for the people. Jesus would die for the sins of the people. Jesus would die for all who would believe in him and put their faith in him and recognize that in him the Son of God had come in their midst 
the one with the power to heal the sick and raise the dead, to cleanse, to feed, to restore and renew. And so we either have to decide that Jesus' death was for us and humbly accept and renew our submission to the Jesus who gave his life. Oh, sure, Jesus was arrested. There came a time when they took him away. But you see, the end of this little passage tells us that Jesus only went to his death when it was the right time. They tried to get him. They were looking for him. Jesus withdrew, not out of fear, but just to wait for the Father's time. Jesus could have called on legions of angels to rescue him. He could have slipped through the crowd any time he wanted, as he had done before. Any one of numerous ways he had the power to evade or avoid the cross. But Jesus went to the cross because the Father called him to submit to the cross because the Scriptures of the Old Testament had said that that's the way it would be, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, that he would be pierced for our iniquities, that the punishment for our sins would be on him, and that Jesus would be dying for all who would believe in him. And so, Jesus dead for you, or Jesus dead to you? Because Jesus at no point was out of control, hiding in corners. He simply waited for the time. There was an expectation that grew as the Passover drew near, and people were looking because the, the, the momentum, the momentum of interest and expectation and anticipation of who Jesus was and what he was going to do was growing to fever pitch. The scene is set as we move into chapter 12, where Jesus comes triumphant into Jerusalem on a donkey, making a declaration, not hiding in corners, but beginning the journey to the cross that the Father had called him to and that Jesus had accepted and whilst the Pharisees and the Sadducees would briefly rub their hands with glee, thinking that they had got rid of Jesus, they would discover very quickly that you can't get rid of Jesus. People have been trying for 2,000 years to get rid of Jesus, and annoyingly, he just keeps coming back. But we have to ask ourselves the questions. Where's the Pharisee or the Sadducee in my heart? <laughs> Where am I wanting to protect my power base and interests? Where do I struggle to obey and let Jesus be Lord of every area of my life? Where are the places where, if I'm honest, I would prefer Jesus to be dead to me in that corner so that I can just do my thing. But of course, Jesus insists that either he's Lord of all, as the old phrase goes, 
or he's not Lord at all.